Okay, let's have a run at this. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Thanks for coming back. Good to see you. Betsy Karkin. They're very popular, busy, always traveling. Best practice is Betsy Karkin. That's her. Somebody asked me if there was any deaconesses in the car. What? What did I say, Karkin? No, she took, he took her name. It's all, yes. <laughs> what? So, and some people, asked, somebody asked me, do we have any deaconesses in the congregation? I said, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a deaconess in this congregation. But Betsy would be specimen one, right? So very, very nicely done. All right, here we go. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Good to see all of you. Uh, believe it or not, you're only 10 days away from Lent. So I always seem to start a bit late for you, and uh, I'm going to try to start a little bit early because I want more out of you. Well, we need a little more production out of you people, okay? So uh, let's go. Uh, no, I mean, I always, I always come too late. And in fact, I had thought about um, talking about fasting today, but I couldn't get there. So I will just say on your own, if you're going to fast this year, begin to think about it now so you don't you know, come up against Wednesday and make a bad choice. You know, the basic, we'll, we'll talk about the theology a little bit next year, but the basic thing is to do something that you can accomplish, but we'll stretch you just a little bit. So, and bring to mind all that Lent is about. We'll talk about that a little bit today. But begin to think, um, you know, we've come to the point where probably for most of you, the question shouldn't be, am I going to fast or not? The question should probably be, what am, what am I going to do? And I'm going to try to explain to you why that's the case. Um, it basically boils down to if you really want to be a community together. And I'm going to, we're going to end with the Old Testament reading from Ash Wednesday today. And I want to try to explain that to you. Uh, you're not an you're not a individual here, right? You're part of this broader community and you choose things, even things that are painful sometimes for the broader community so that everything kind of hangs together. But let's, um, let's have a go at this. I, read, uh, I went back and read the first two or three lessons from when we started this year, and I was surprised how grim uh, they felt, given how things feel now. Things are slightly better. You know, there's a bit of light on the horizon, it seems. And people have come back to church, and that's, that's really nice. Uh, but I think we have to remember where we've been and sort of what we've been through, and to realize this isn't going to... Our life isn't going to come back to unless we work at it. And so this title stolen from Madeline Lingle, Believing Takes Practice. Now that can make Lutherans incredibly nervous, but I'm going to try to explain to you why it shouldn't make you nervous as we go through today. So here we go, just to point number one. Just a reminder of who you are. You're otherworldly folk and you're grateful to be that way. You're thankful to be otherworldly. One of the things that always happens with tragedy or disaster is you realize how horrible the world actually is. And so the gratitude that you have for being otherworldly, for having a second way, or a way of escape, and the notion that God is always at work. So in the Old Testament today, it's very interesting, Joseph's little tag where he says, God did this to me so that I could serve you right? That's a crazy thing to say about your brothers who sold you into slavery, almost got you killed. But if we can begin to think like that, that would be very, very good for us. So the Lord is always at work showing us a way out and for us to be grateful for that and then to respond properly to that. So Lent, and it is just 10 days away, so a week from Wednesday, there'll be ashes here. Lent emphasizes all these things we've been talking about, that we're one, that we're strange, that we're beautiful, 
that were glory. So Lent is going to try to emphasize this. And you have these periods where you rejoice in that. You know, here is you know, maybe the first thing you need to remember about yourselves, that you're free. So I'm at point number three. Freedom means that you have some options. Before Jesus comes to live with you, and that was a very nice point in the sermon today about the word for mercy being one of the words about the Father coming to live with you. When, when Jesus comes to live with you, then you are free. And that means you have some options that you never had before. And so I just give you this little tag. For freedom, Christ has set us free. But the most important thing there is that we are free. Now, of course, in America in the last six months, year, two years, three years, has been the great proof that um, if you think freedom just means you can do anything you want, that's dumb, D-U-M, that's dumb. Right? So freedom doesn't mean, and I sort of give it here as a question mark, but apparently I'm a bit more forceful this morning. You know, does freedom mean you can do anything? No, of course it doesn't mean you can do anything. But here's the other side. Does freedom mean you can do nothing? Right? It also does not mean that. So freedom does not mean that you can do anything. And freedom also does not mean that you can do nothing. That's not to be free. It is the freedom to do something new. So that's the bottom of the page. You remember when the archbishop was here a few weeks ago, and he you know, offhandedly said, when they fired me from my teaching job and put me to cleaning sewers, he said, it was then that I felt relieved. It was then that I felt free. Right? That's not how we would normally think about it. But there it is. So uh, I give you this uh, reading from Deuteronomy. You know this, and I, we don't have to do the whole thing, but I just want to observe to you how obedience and love and walking and holding and keeping and living and flourishing and blessing and dwelling, how those are all synonyms. And you can also, you can often test your own worldview, or you can see whether it's in the way of the gospel when everything, when these things all become synonyms. You, you're going to hear it today in the gospel, right? Turn the other cheek, lend, expect nothing in return, do good to those who hate you. And I was reading a church father this week who said, um, you all think that when you love your enemy because Jesus told you to do it, that you're all the way there. He said, they said, that's not it at all. He said, you love your enemy because your enemy needs your love, which of course is very different. That's the freedom to love people who have wounded us or who have disappointed us or who are different than we are or whom the world would even characterize as your enemies. But of course you, and you're going to hear it, you know, in the gospel for today, you don't have any enemies, right? Your enemies are principalities and powers and demons. Those are your enemies. So, you know, I just give you this text from Deuteronomy. It's a recurring theme where the Lord comes and says, I've set before you life and good, death and evil. Now, it's extraordinarily important for you to understand that 
the Lord has come to them and given them a second option. So Lutherans often react to this with hives because, you know, they get very, there's, oh, this is decision theology, blah, blah, blah. Hey, just relax for a moment, okay? You have one option. The Lord comes to you and turns your head to show you a second option. Now you have two options. You also have the Holy Spirit within you. You also have what the New Testament describes as a new will. So you remember, when you're sinful, you can't see very well. Your intellect doesn't see very well. It's cloudy. And your uh, heart, um, your will does not choose very well because you love the wrong things. So when you're sinful, you can't see well, clearly, and you can't choose well, clearly. So you end up making a lot of mistakes. Then when the Holy Spirit comes to you, he opens your eyes. So Saul on the Damascus Road, the scales fall from his eyes. You can suddenly see things you couldn't see, And now you love things you didn't love before, like your enemies. And you choose things that only God would choose. For example, to be merciful to other people. So when this text says, I've come to you and I've set before you, all that work has already been done. They're out of Egypt. They're across the Red Sea. Um, They've gotten the Ten Commandments. The Lord has told them what's good and what's evil. He's given them life. He's taken them as his own people. He is their God. And he says, come on now, won't you play along? This is not unlike having children, right? You say to your children, there's this, and then there's that. You should choose that. And when it all runs together, when these are all synonyms, then you know you have it. So today I set before you life and good, death and evil. If you obey, if you love, I'm just doing the things that are bold. If you walk, if you keep these commandments, then you'll live and you'll flourish, you'll multiply, and God will bless you. If you obey, right? But if your heart turns away, now already, you remember, you're so kind to me, uh, you know, you were turned this way. If you turn away, if you turn back, That's when the troll comes. You have to understand, this is how, for example, speaking is easy. When I say to you, um, I love you, or you're a jerk, you pick one. Uh, (laughs) You can't unhear that, right? You've already heard it. You can't unhear it. You can only choose whether or not it's true. You know, if you touch someone in baptism, for example, or healing, or blessing, you can't untouch them. And you can't reverse it in time. You've already been touched. You've already been blessed. You can only turn away from it. This is exactly what happens to Israel. This is what happens to you. God comes to you. He dwells with you in mercy. He touches you. He speaks to you. He loves you. He holds you dear. He baptizes you. He gives you his body and blood. He does that to you. He turns you toward it. He feeds you. He nourishes you. He blesses you. He puts his name on you. He tattoos you. He takes you as his own. You belong to him. Your options are stay where he puts you, John 15, or run away, the prodigal son, Luke 15. 
Those are your choices. It's it's so early in the Old Testament, right? So loving and obeying and walking and holding and keeping and flourishing and blessing and dwelling are all the same. And then it's, you know, second to the last bit there that's indented. I call heaven and earth, you know, things that are worldly and things that are otherworldly, to witness against you today that I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life, which is stay where you put. This is the same as Jesus saying, abide in me and I in you, right? This is a great point from the sermon today. Mercy moves in. Mercy dwells. Mercy changes the landscape, right? You can't unhear it. You can't untouch it. All you can do is flee. Don't flee. Stay put. Dwell, right? Choose life and obey and hold fast and live a long time, right? Now, um, there's a, at the bottom is a quote from a guy, uh, quite non-Lutheran guy, but a very admirable guy, uh, Dallas Willard. You guys have probably <laughs> never heard of him, but I got, well, um, maybe you have. He was two things. He was a very fine pastor. And I think, he, uh, uh, if I recall this correctly, he was also chair of the philosophy department at USC. And this has happened in my lifetime because I've met some of his students and talked with them. So, you know, 25 years ago, you know, he's saying this and also chair of the philosophy department at a prestigious university. You can hardly believe such a thing could happen today, which shows you kind of how far we've drifted. But you and, you know, anybody who's Lutheran here, try not to react. Just go with this for a moment, okay? Here we go. Um... Oh, no, I gave you the dedicate. I'm going to turn you ahead. Uh, uh, you know what? Page number six, yeah. May I just give you this word, right? May I just give you this word? Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. This is beautiful, right? I mean, you'd expect this as a philosopher, definition of words. Earning is an attitude... Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness, and then you can kind of skip that. Uh, we kind of, you know, you can read that later. It's a little bit technical. But take the next paragraph. In contrast, I am bold to say the gospel of the entire New Testament is that you can have new life now. You can have an otherworldly life now. You can be different than the world in which you live. It's an extraordinary kind of claim that you can actually be different, which, of course, you know. I mean, there's no secret here. This is what I'm trying to have happen at St. John. This is what I want for you and for me. This is the community I want to live in. This is what I want to be a part of. This is the church I want to belong to. And I frankly don't want to belong to any other kind of church because it makes me crazy, the possibilities the church has and squanders. You can have this new life now if you'll trust Jesus Christ. Very important. Not just something he did or something he said, but trust the whole person of Christ in everything he touches, which is everything. Now turn the page. There is one God, and there's one mediator between God and humankind, Christ himself. If you would really like to be into consuming grace, so this is his metaphor, basically, that grace pours out from God and we sort of, you know, let it wash over it, drink it in, let it soak us, right? Let it energize us. 
that grace comes constantly and we don't protect ourselves from it. We take it in full blast. If you really want to be into consuming grace, just lead a holy life, which of course for you is possible now. Not that you'll be holy, but that it's only a good work when it's a forgiven work. So not that you somehow become perfect on your own. No, you become perfect by being totally immersed, washed up in the blood of Christ. The true saint burns grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff, right? The true saint burns grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff. Become the kind of person who routinely, regularly, like this is your life, not just for Lent. Lent's a tune-up. Lent is like, you know, the hard push before you sort of wind down and then actually run the marathon. Become the kind of person who routinely does what Jesus did and Jesus said. I've said this to you a billion times. Christianity is to see as Jesus sees and say as Jesus says and do as Jesus does and choose as Jesus chooses and live as Jesus lives. That's our life together. You will consume much more grace by leading a holy life than you will by sinning. We always think that's opposite. If I'm a big sinner, then I need big grace. It isn't that true. But you know why else you need a lot of grace? If you want to live a holy life. John Kleinig, you know, repeatedly... Uh, would come to us and would say to you always, I don't know if you remember, pray for the Holy Spirit. Because you don't possess the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to you as a gift. Wake up every morning and pray for the Holy Spirit that he would fill you and guide you. It's another way of praying for grace. And that upholding is totally the unmerited favor of God in action. So there's no contradiction between Salvation is a perfect gift and working with all you've got to be in the image of Christ, right? It is the life of regeneration and resurrection and justification, which is absolutely vital for our sins to be forgiven, but justification is not something separate from regeneration. This is beautiful. We must stop using the fact that we cannot earn grace, whether for justification or sanctification, as an excuse for not energetically seeking to receive grace. And here's the thing. So this is why you have seasons in the church. Because Lent is this 40 days, and you know, of course not accident, right? Rains for 40 days and 40 nights, saves Noah. First reading in Lent will be Matthew this year. Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights fasting and engaging the devil as he's tempted. 40 is everywhere. This is your 40 days and 40 nights of being in the ark, of being in the wilderness. This is your 40 days and 40 nights of getting yourself tuned up, getting back on track. And frankly, after the last couple of years, what churches need more than anything is to get their rhythm back. And you know, we all need to get our rhythm back. Every week, we, now today, we're off today, and I'm not exact because maybe it's a holiday weekend. We also have confirmation kids away. But just kind of like the last 10 weeks, about 20 people have been, 20 more people every week, kind of like clockwork, boom, 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 right? But I mean, we're still a long way to go. We still have a couple hundred people that we haven't figured out where, what in the world, where, where they are or what's happening to them. Um, and we'll talk, you know, three weeks from now, maybe four, about what does it mean to come back to church and be a community and how we help those people and what we need to do. We'll talk about fear and we'll also talk about um, courage. 
which frankly is just about what this all boils down to now. So, we have to stop using the fact that we can't earn grace as an excuse for not energetically seeking to receive grace. Having been found by God, we then become seekers. See, have a passive verb. All the great verbs of salvation are passive. Having been found by God. Or, in a different way, since God found you, since God did the work, since mercy means he lives with you, since he came up to you, since he gave you a second option, since you now have the choice for good or for evil, for life or for death, right? Having been found by God, we become seekers of an eller, ever fuller life in him. Right? And this is, this is like just the most basic stuff that we do here. Christ's scripture prayer. Right? Liturgy and Eucharist, tithing and alms, a thorough mercy that gives a winsome witness, pure acts to stuff. This is what we do here. We gotta, we gotta get our swag back on this kind of stuff. I mean, this just has to come back to us as the normal thing that we all do now. And it's difficult for us because in one sense, we realize how tender people are and what the challenges are, and we realize how people all think differently. The last two years have been a very interesting example of that. On the other hand, what you get at this altar, you can't get anywhere else. Not online, not virtually. You, you just can't. There, the gospel is touch, physical touch of the incarnate Christ on your ears, on your skin, on your tongue. So we have to think about what this means. Grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort, right? And this is just such a difficult last line, right? The realities of spiritual formation are that we will not be transformed into his likeness by, and we've said this to you again, it's not a data dump. And this is a huge mistake for Lutherans to think about the faith as a data dump, as learning things. My poor old grandmother, I've told you about her a thousand times, right? All by herself, only kid in the confirmation class. On a hot afternoon, answering 437 questions in German by herself in front of the entire congregation before she could go to the Holy Supper. Because you know, if you know a lot of stuff, you're ready to go. It's not infusions, inspirations, ministrations alone. These have an important place. They never suffice. But then this, this is really, you know, prescient about the church and kind of damning. Reliance on them alone explains the now common failure of committed Christians to rise much above a certain level of decency. Right? Talk about being damned with faint praise. The church is a kind of a, a decent place. Right? Or people, even to say kind of people are nice. Like that's just the baseline for shopping at a 7 Eleven. The church should be, people should walk in and go, I feel like I've been transported into the metaverse. No, they shouldn't say that. They should say things like, I'm just seeing if you're paying attention. I, know, I don't know what you're doing there. What you're thinking about, I don't know. You're thinking about NASCAR, Daytona 500 today, right? Yeah, way to go. So, um, now, Um, since I'm already outside the outline, I'm free. (laughs) But you'll notice if you just read the numbers, you can see how my mind works. Number three, we're free. And then if you go to number four, it says, so do some good. And then number five says, do some more. And then six says, why don't you all make some sacrifices? (laughs) 
And frankly, I've got some ideas for many of you, okay? Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, all the way back to where I got out of order. At the end of three, you have the Didache, which I've given you before. Uh, this is at the bottom uh, after point three of the Didache. And it's so interesting to me how the Old Testament says, choose wisely. Jesus says, choose wisely. The Didache, which pretty much everybody agrees now, was written between the time of Jesus' death and maybe the year 100. Uh, it's basically a manual of instruction of how are we going to live together as a, as a church. And you get this gorgeous stuff. This is the very first page. There are two ways of life, one of life and one of death. But there's a great difference between the two ways. The way of life is like this. Love God and love your neighbor. Right? That's the way of life. Love God and love your neighbor. And then the next paragraph, bless those who curse you. And then the next paragraph, don't have any enemies. This is the gospel for today, right? So I'm turning the page. Your freedom, and really the only freedom that you have, is the God-given freedom to do good. So, and this, is, of course, is stunning to us, that freedom doesn't mean you can do anything you want, and freedom does not mean you can do nothing at all. Not if you're a disciple of Jesus. If you're a disciple of Jesus, no, neither of those are options. Um, when people say, you know, they don't want to tithe to the church, and by the way, I'm, I'm going to come to this in a couple of weeks because I had this very interesting conversation with a very nice person who said to me, you know... You always talk about money. And I said, I never talk about money. Kirby, does this sound like home? Oh, yeah, just a second. So here's the thing. That for me was so interesting. So you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to talk about money so we don't have to talk about money. It's coming. So does he say, you're not laughing, which means you haven't absorbed anything I've said yet. But that's okay. I still love you. You're not my enemy. You are a tough crowd. See, in the old days, you thought this was much more funny. All right. But if you're a little nervous, it's all right. Freedom is discipline or freedom is obedience. And this thing from uh, Scalia, who's a genius of a woman. It just happened to be a margin comment today as well. Hardly anyone believes it, but it's true. Obedience brings tremendous freedom to our lives. But we can't possibly know that unless we practice it, right? Leaving takes practice. And practicing it is hard and sometimes against all our instincts. Except, as I wrote recently about something else, the hard stuff is also the great stuff. You believe that about everything else in life. If you're having heart surgery, you want the heart surgeon who worked really hard in med school. Right? And if you're going to invest some money, you want to invest it with somebody who lies awake at night so you don't have to lie awake at night. And you want a spouse or a child who gets up and goes after whatever they're going after, full blast. Doesn't matter. Sports teams, grocery stores, automobiles, pick something. In every other aspect of your life, you actually believe the hard stuff is the great stuff. You believe that. 
And what I'm asking you to do is to believe that about church. And more importantly, to believe that about your own soul. The hard stuff is the great stuff. It's not hard, of course, to understand. It's just so hard to do. It's so hard to turn the other cheek. It's so hard to expect nothing in return. It's it's hard. It also makes for a life that the world can't possibly understand. And that's the reason to do it. As Paul says, imitate me the way I imitate Christ. Okay, we're going to get a big dose of Christ in the next 40 days. And it's not going to be pretty. Uh, It's going to be really hard. And it'll turn out to be really best. So, you know, this is why the church has such things. Freedom is obedience. Freedom is action. Glorify God in your body, that text from um, 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know you're not your own? Don't you know you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know it's not about you? Don't you know? Everybody knows this, don't you know? You should know this. You should have remembered this when you got baptized. You should remember this at the Eucharist. It's not about you. It's about the person next to you. Or it's about you for the instant you're being forgiven. And then suddenly it becomes about everybody else. Don't you know? So glorify God in your body. Do some good. And of course you know this, that um, you know good is objective. I don't have to tell you all of this, but I thought I would give you this. But I, it's very interesting to me that we who, you know, Lutherans prize, Luther's, every seminary guy I know is reading Luther's lectures on Galatians. I'm just like, yeah, you know, okay. But I mean, read this part. Do some good, right? Look at the end of this. Hey, don't grow weary of doing good, you know. Don't give up. Whenever you've got an invitation, opportunity, do some good. Do some good to everyone. Even to those crazy people who are on the opposite side of everything that you believe in, do some good toward them. And, of course, to love is to do good, so you start with loving them. And then, you know, I'm turning the page to five. You should do some good, and then what's so interesting is then Paul says, and you should do some more. So whatever you thought you were doing, you should do some more of that. Right? And here it is, you know. We urge you and we ask you. Now, the same words that were used in the Didache, same words that were used in the Old Testament, that you would walk in a way that pleases God, and then, you know, and do so more and more and more and more and more and more. For you know what the instructions are. You got them through Jesus Christ. You got them as a gift when God came near. And then skip the big paragraph, but go to the next one. For God called us not for impurity, freedom that does anything it wants, or freedom that does nothing. No, God called us not to impurity, but for boundaries but for limits, but for doing the hard stuff because that's the good stuff. That's what God calls us to do. He calls us to holiness, right? Which means that there's a lot of stuff that's unholy. It's actually kind of simple. You know this, right? You know it's easy Ten Commandments stuff. I'm your God. Here's my name. See you on Sunday. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Take good care of your children and your spouse. And be happy with what you've got. Life couldn't be easier. That's holiness. Everything else is fair game. So, you know, part of this means that you need to make some sacrifices. And we sort of ran through that uh, Willard bit. But if you turn the page, it's there in Romans 12. 
And now, since you're a lot smarter than you were, you know, 30 minutes ago, listen to this. I appeal to you by the mercies of God, you know, by God who came to dwell with you, by God who resurrected you, by God who came to you. You didn't come to him. God chose you. You didn't choose God. God believes in you. You didn't believe in God, at least not to start. When I'm in a smarty pants mood, which is most of the time, and somebody says to me, you know, I'm worried because I don't believe in God. You know, one of my offhanded remarks is, yeah, it doesn't matter. God believes in you. I'm always curious what they'll do at that point. But God believes in you before you believe in God. It actually does matter, but it's just a starting point. I appeal to you to live, to be a living sacrifice. Ouch, that's painful. Holy and acceptable to God. That's your otherworldly worship. Don't, and then this, hey, get this. This is for next Sunday. Do not be conformed to this world, but be, anybody know what that word is? We've talked about this before a time or two. Transformed, what's that really word there? Miguel, what's that real word there? Greek, New Testament, memorized in your head. Advanced degrees, smart boy. Going to be a pastor. Yeah, it's uh, metamorphoo, but very good, good. Same, same beginning, yeah. Or for you who grew up in, with children my age, this is the mighty Morphin Power Rangers word. <laughs> this is the word for transfiguration, metamorphoo, right? So next week Jesus gets transfigured, but you all get transfigured too. You get to float above the landscape and your face gets all shiny and you get a halo and Elijah's over here and Moses over here and you can ask anything you want and the only thing you can't do is build three shacks and stay there forever because we've got to go back down the mountain. There's a boy possessed by a demon and sometimes it makes him foam at the mouth and other times it throws him into the fire. So let's go and then we're off to the next thing and then the next and finally to Jerusalem. Ooh, there's a lot to do. So you're a sacrifice holy and acceptable to God. Transfigured by the renewal of your mind to do, and here it is again, what is good and acceptable and perfect, another synonym for holiness. So present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, right? And so point seven, welcome to Lent. Now, I'm trying to give you a heads up because um, I feel like I've surprised you and you're busy and you know, none of you are looking at your calendar 10 days out, but you should be looking at it. But against Lent, first I just want to remind you, Way back in the beginning, way back when we started, first couple of lessons, you remember we did a couple of the names for, um, we did the couple of names for your, the old evil foe. Was, as I don't, so do you remember, um, and they have names, right? In the, in the Old Testament, you're actually named for what you are. So the, the name Satan, do you, does anybody remember what that was? Satan means what? Anybody remember? Do it again. Accuser or, or liar. Which is, yeah, the, it is accuser, uh, but often by way of lies, right? So he tells a lie about you because, let's face it, nobody can say anything bad about you. So, uh, so one is liar, Satan is liar. And then do you remember the other one, devil, diabolos? Do you remember what that meant? Yes, divider or scatterer, right? So first Satan lies and then he scatters. So interesting because, of course, the church is about telling the truth and being one body, one community, one assembly. So you remember then, as part of the antidote to that, are the spiritual disciplines. There are four that order time and three that order space. So, you know, check with your local physics major. Space and time. That's as, 
listen, for anybody in the humanities, that's as far as that part of our brain goes, okay? Just, I'm just with you there, so. But if you want to talk about cold fusion, your guy in the back in the corner, he's your guy, okay? He's doing it in his basement. I think it's going to be okay. I'm not sure. <laughs> but you remember how you order time. So your prayer orders the day, and Sabbath orders the week, right? And feasts order the year, and a pilgrimage orders your life. Right? So that's how you, prayer is going to order your day. You're going to pray morning and evening, for example. Every day, morning and evening, morning and evening, perhaps more, but morning and evening is traditional for Old Testament and New Testament. Prayer orders the day. Sabbath orders the week, right? Um, the festivals of the year. So we're in Epiphany. This is the last week of Epiphany. Then we have Transfiguration. Then we have Lent, right? Then we have Easter. That orders the year. And just once in your life, if you could get to you know Jerusalem or... Um, you could walk the Camino in Spain or go to Rome, right? So we have ways to order time. Now remember, see, this is, this is antidote because Satan scatters and creates disorder. If you don't believe that, just walk outside the door today and look around. The world is disordered inside the church we have, and these all become synonyms. Order, obedience, best, hard, freedom. Properly understood, those things are all synonyms. And so we sort of say, I could use a Lent right now, right? I could use Lent. And I could use a little help around here, by the way. How can you help me observe Lent too? I mean, we'll talk about this in a few weeks, but <laughs> you all come to church for me. You all thought it was about you, didn't you? No, don't forsake the assembly in Hebrews. You know why you come to church? You come to church for me. You know why I come to church? I come to church for you. That's why we come to church. We come to church for each other. And then, of course, so that orders time, and then we order space. How do we order space? Fasting orders our body. Tithing orders our work. And the Eucharist orders our community. There you go. So every once in a while, you fast so you can um, order the space in your life. So you fast for the body, you tithe to order your work life, and then the Eucharist you know, orders our community together. And those seven things have classically been recognized as restoring the order that Satan has destroyed. And even in the littlest way, if you follow Satan and you become a destroyer, of order, if you create chaos in your congregation, if you create, uh, if you scatter your family by being a bad parent or being a bad child, right? If you're a bad friend, right? And you blow up your, your friend group, that's all the work of the devil. And the repair for that is to return home like the prodigal to sit with God who is gracious, and to seek all the things that are good. Uh, I've given you, and I will come back to this next week, the reading, the Old Testament reading from uh, Ash Wednesday, and I've alluded to, because I know you won't believe this about me, but I thought I would stay on track and get a little farther. But, uh, you know, I've given you the old... Because what I don't want you to do is think I'm making this up as I go along. 
Let me just, just read this Old Testament reading. All the elements are there. Weeping, fasting, repenting, staying, getting the community together, and all together returning to the place where God has put them. And then this great line, and we talk about this with fasting, and then who knows what the Lord might do. And you remember I've tried that, we'll talk about this next week again, but I've tried to always say to you, people always think, because we always think about ourselves, I'll fast and then God will do what I want. A misinterpretation of Jesus says some of these demons only come out by prayer and fasting. So I'll pray and I'll fast and then Jesus will give me what? No, no, no. That's not how this works. Because grace comes from the other way. It's not about effort. It's about God's attitude toward us. So God is merciful to us and says, won't you please come back? Won't you please use the gifts I've given you? Won't you see the way I see and say the way I say and do the way I do? Won't you please, 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 please do that? Won't you please get your life in order? And then what the proper response is, of course I'll come home and I'll live in the gifts that you've given me. And then maybe things will turn out all right. But if they don't, you know, I, I, you know I, I, I know why they went wrong. They went wrong because of me. And I'll live with that too. Not everything that we do wrong just gets tidied up, you know, as if nothing happened. But we can live again, right? We can be new again. You may not get your old life back, but you can have a new life. It'll be different, but it'll be new. And ordering time and space are ways that we do that. And that's part of the reason these things kind of collapse together, the Sabbath and the fasting and the liturgical year and the tithing, it all sort of collapses together to remind us what sort of people we ought to be in Christ. Okay, we got to go. I love you. I'll see you next week. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.